Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. As one of the world's top specialists in counter-terrorism, kidnap and personal security, Will Geddes, aka the real James Bond or the real bodyguard, has worked in hostile environments all over the world, including Iraq, Afghanistan and Hollywood. He felt most scared on the road from Basra to Baghdad, most happy in New York and a relaxing break from work turned into a search and rescue operation in the 2004 tsunami. With close and personal connections to so many famous people, none of whom he can tell us about, it's Will Geddes. I read this great summary of you online oh, and God. it says... Don't believe what you see online. I think, I think I might be able to believe this. And I think there's probably things that you're not going to be able to tell me, but it says sure. that you're one of the world's leading specialists in counter-terrorism, kidnap, personal security and close protection services and have worked in hostile environments around the world, including Iraq, Afghanistan and Hollywood, from what I can I know, gather. I know. And that's probably the most hostile of all of the environments. I can imagine. Yeah. Dangerous place Actually, to be. I had breakfast this morning with um, an action movie star. And uh, what always makes me laugh with these guys is they'll, they'll wear a baseball cap and they'll go, this is my cloak of invisibility. And you're like, who the hell are you think you're kidding? <laughs> In fact, you're probably drawing more attention wearing your baseball cap than if you didn't wear one. You know, it's celebrity of duty, tracksuit, baseball cap. You That's just brilliant. see someone and you think, yeah, you're, you obviously must be someone famous. I, I think the, the best one I ever had was uh, Reese Witherspoon who was actually sat in my gym on an exercise bicycle with a baseball cap and big Jackie O sunglasses. And it was like, no one's going to spot your Reese. But this is one of your your expert areas. Would you tell people how to sort of blend into the crowd there? To be honest, you know, some of the really big A-listers, they tend to just merge into the crowd. And if they do have security, which quite often many of them don't, the security has to be equally low profile because, to be honest, is the security that can almost announce their arrival before they even step into the room. So how that's calibrated, presented, profiled makes all the difference. And it's all about, like you rightly say, blending into the background. The gone are the days of the man mountain. Do you remember there was a fashion maybe about 10 years ago that people had a man mountain they walking behind do. them? Some do. But surely they 
Surely they can't run after someone. How can the man mountain protect you? The man mountain is basically in the same way as a mountain. You, they've got to climb over him. And, and, and are they energetic enough to do so? So, yeah, it might be good for slowing a threat, but that's probably about it. You see that with some policemen. I'm don't, going totally off tangent. Some really large police people as well. And you think, how can they, how are they going to... I don't know. You know? Maybe, maybe I've got a taller or something, but policemen all look, A, younger, but that's probably my age. And, and B, they're looking a lot smaller. Oh, yeah. I don't and, know. And, it must uh, be a trend. And I have to say, and I love the police and I work with them all the time. But there are a few chubby ones too. There is a which, few chubby ones. Excuse me, being non-PC, but, you know, <laughs> How good are they going to be to chase after the villain? They'll be huffing and puffing within a few yards, maybe. I didn't mean to start off this conversation fat shaming. It's gone terribly wrong. But, um, oh, dear. Sorry. sorry. No, it's you were invited fine. the wrong guest uh, if yeah. that wasn't your intention. Sorry. Well, you're obviously, you know, in a very good shape yourself. Tell us, didn't always tell used to us be. what it is. I oh, was really? a fat child. No, Let seriously? me tell you, I was a child of the 70s brought up on spam. So, mince you know, and potatoes. Mince and, and potatoes. And, yeah, um, flying saucers, if some of the listeners remember them. I you do, know, the melty still, things in your mouth. That's right, with yeah. a bit of licorice inside. Oh, yes, I was a chubby child. And chubby how did you child. get to... How, well, let's start there, actually. How did really? you get from... Do you want to start no, there? Not, not with the weight problem. How did we? Um, how did you get into the whole security business? Uh, a couple of books from the library and a video. Is that all we need? And I got a special badge, <laughs> which I only bring out on special was occasions. Was it a Blue Peter badge? It's not that posh. What the show, I've always, you know what? I've always wanted to have a blue Peter badge. Yeah, they get you, they get you discounts and things. Do they? Yeah, they Where? get you into like um into like attractions. They get you discounts into attractions. Yeah, into like you know if you want to go to I don't know the Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I yeah, don't know. Crazy <laughs> Horse in Paris. It's no good unless they can get me in there. At a I reckon bargain. you can probably get yourself in there. Really? I had a, I got into a fight once with some legionnaires. We were on As a task do. in Paris looking after a principal, and there were a whole bunch of legionnaires who were there, obviously on leave and uh, we all got into this and this that was a man mountain it's a bit i can't tell you the whole thing because i might have done something a bit naughty but um. anyway it all got very rocky but the funny thing about legionnaires is if you can find one that's genuinely french it's a rarity most of them are probably scousers but how did you get into it let's start at the very beginning so you were a young kid you I thought i want to be a spy no, people call you the james the real james <sighs> bond don't they they call That's you so the real james bond isn't it? Isn't and it? the yeah. real bodyguard i don't know people sound probably more like the roger moore than you know the daniel craig which is really depressing so, or the idris elba who i'm hoping is going to be the next one. you think i think it'd be good you know what he gets my vote he I, gets my vote absolutely. i think idris is great and all yeah. the ladies will come back and watch bond again won't they I I don't remember, actually, I haven't read the books, but I've never, I don't remember them saying that he had to be a white guy. No, exactly. No. And it all started in Jamaica, didn't it? Did it? Yeah, I with Ian oh, Fleming. Yes, it did. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yes. That's right. Yeah, anyway, it makes sense. But you are the real James Bond. How I'm did you get really to be the real James Bond? I'm doing really good at diverting, aren't I? <laughs> this is where my expertise comes I in. I know. Are you like sort of nicking my handbag or something? Or someone's Absolutely. invading I've the building? Cloned your identity already, <laughs> and uh, I've gone mad shoe shopping for my wife. There's people coming down the building. SAS style on uh, always what do you call it? And on they, those ropes with a squeegee yeah doing you know, the because you've got to be multitasking doing the windows really cute. how did you get into the whole business <laughs> Mr James Bond the okay. real James Bond so I started in the industry from pretty much the unconventional area you know a lot of guys who come into the industry will generally go through the military or go through the police or the security services they they leave their respective institution and it's what do I do next and it's a very easy transition for many of those guys to get into that area now 
I came from the area which is really ambiguous. So, you know, again, it took me an awful long time to gain some credibility, although do I still have credibility? I don't know. That, that's a question you what need you to mean, ask. Since you've been sitting here with me. Well, no, no, no. It's, no, it's only increased now I'm here. So, you know, my credit points are going sky high right now. But yeah, I started off like a lot of guys studying martial arts from the age of seven. And as a young, you know, fat child, as we've mentioned in the seventies, you know, my dad, who was a boxer and was in the army said, right, I'm going to get you into judo. And a lot of schools would provide judo. And it was pretty brutal back in those days. It wasn't sort of caring and sharing and, you know, safe spaces as you see today. I mean, it was literally, if you did something wrong, your instructor slapped you across the head and that was at school. So anyway, I started with judo, really enjoyed it got into the martial arts, uh, studied across many, many different styles, spent some time in the Far East, did some studying in Japan, in Hong Kong, Indonesia, all sorts of places. And I came back and like a, a lot of guys, I think in their sort of their early twenties, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And if you ask me, you know, when I was a little man, what did I want to do when I grew up? I had absolutely no idea. Sadly, I left school with only four O levels. And it was one of those weird circumstances where I was over a lunch with some friends and there was this nice guy who was an ex-parachute regiment who sat there and we were chatting and as the conversation in the wine flowed mentioned in passing that he was providing self-defense training to a bunch of women regularly at a sort of a sort of community center you know we discussed martial arts and I said you know what's your background and your experience and he said pretty little you know it's fundamentally the standard parachute regiment approach of thump them really hard <laughs> and probably not a great deal of finesse beyond that which I said to a certain degree, that's pretty good. Anyway, cutting a very long story short, he said, would you like to come with me, Will, and give me a few ideas and have a look at what I'm doing? And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. So I went along. We got on like a house on fire. And we developed this little business, which was initially called Corporate Self-Defense. And we became the first company that actually went out to major corporations and said, you've got female staff and male staff. And how about providing them with some personal protection or self-defense training? And some very smart companies, some big ones, uh, turned around and said, oh, what a nice idea. And it was really at the beginning and the cusp of this whole well-being issue for staff within companies. And what can we do to make our staff happy? So the whole thing built from there. And then inevitably, we got more and more business. And we were doing a lot of the very sort of female orientated uh, industry sectors like PR and like um, advertising. And inevitably, you'd have a female director or an employee who'd say, I'm just about to go away on a business trip to Mexico or to Dar es Salaam or to Cape Town or wherever it might be. Could one of you guys come with us? And at this time, we'd built up quite a stable of guys and I'd been emptying both Hereford and Poole of guys who were leaving the <laughs> regiment or leaving uh, the SBS who were thinking, what am I going to do? Do I want to go on the circuit, be a bodyguard, do whatever, you know, most guys do when they come out of the military. Some of them came down. I had some of the great and the good, some big names that are legendary within some of those units who were coming along. We'd train them in our methodology. They'd then roll out the training and companies loved it. And you had all these lovely female executives who were going, wow, we've had a couple of SAS guys training us today. It was great fun. Anyway, they'd ask for bodyguards, you know, and we go, great. Well, you know, George, Nish, Fred, do you want to go and escort this nice lady obviously on her trip? And they go, yeah. So the business built and as inevitably it would happen, people say, yeah, but also I'm worried about the security of the office or the security of my home or, you know, this, that or the other. And so the company built and built and built 
Now, the parachute regiment guy and I parted ways, and I started International Corporate Protection. And from there, basically, the company grew, and we grew into uh, four officers across the world, a staff of about 350 around the world, and that's just the sort of key persons, and then we have additionals beyond that. And we have a pretty much a reach into about 42 countries. So this is the big travel podcast, and travel sounds like it's a very integral part of what you do. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of stories that you probably can't tell Tell me, what's the biggest, most outrageous story that you can hint at oh that you can't Lord. actually tell me that's okay. happened when you've been in a place of travel? You know what? The thing is with me is it's probably more out of bad luck and bad, bad timing than anything else. I'll give you one example. In 2005, if I recall, I'd spent a good deal of that year in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Had a couple of scrapes here and there, but not a dent on me. Exhausted, said to the girlfriend at the time, we need to go away somewhere nice at the end of the year. We'll take two and a half weeks. Let's go to Thailand. Here's the money. You book the holiday and off we go. So we turned up, obviously, just before Christmas to go away for our holiday. We arrive, obviously, uh, at the hotel, which unfortunately was all on the beach, but it was still being built and there were contractors everywhere. And I was like, you know what? I've lived in nonsense for the whole year and I've slept on the floor and covered in dust and I need luxury and this isn't going to cut it. We're not even putting our bags down. So I managed to find this five-star hotel, amazing five-star hotel, which was ridiculous amounts of money, Lisa. I can't tell you. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was eye-bleedingly expensive. Whereabouts was it? It was called the Amanpuri. Oh, yes. Uh, which is in Phuket. Phuket, yes, I know. Which is I've a, stayed next to it. <laughs> oh, it's a stunning hotel. In the Laguna Beach next to it. And we, we checked in and they said, well, you know, we can cover you for these days, but the couple of days in between we're fully booked, but then you can come back. And I'm like, we'll get in there. We'll put anchors down. They ain't getting us out once we're in. So we moved there and it was like a thousand bucks a night or something crazy. But I thought this is the one holiday of the year I could have. So we have a lovely time. We check in and it was on Boxing Day and we had a lovely Christmas day. And on Boxing Day morning, I say to the lovely girlfriend I was with at the time, I said, I'm going to go down, get our nice bed sorted out for the beach and for the day. And I go down and I find the water's gone right out. And I'm thinking, this is really unusual. And the diving platform's now sitting on the sand. And me, like a couple of other idiots, decide to investigate the now sort of recessed shoreline. And then all of a sudden, first wave comes in, which is the beginning of the tsunami. Mm. And we get washed up onto the beach. And if you know the Ramanpuri, it's up on a hill. So everybody, some Australian guy who was very smart, turned around and said, it's a tsunami. It's a tidal wave get to higher ground. So, because I didn't have a clue, never been in one before in my life. We all run up the hill and the second wave and the third wave and everything comes in. And then literally the rest of that, I got to the top and I'd been doing a lot of stuff recently for Sky News. So I called them up and said, guys, do you know what the hell's happening here in Thailand? And they turned around and said, are you kidding me? Are you in Thailand? There is a tsunami. And I went, okay. And they said, could you go live and do a quick sort of situation report for us? And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Because they then transmitted that and broadcast it. I then got deluged by thousands of calls from contacts, from clients, from friends who said, we're missing someone. We're missing a parent. We're missing a daughter. We're missing a friend. Can you help out? So the rest of my holiday then turned into a search and rescue operation. And we had some good successes, but we had some sad discoveries as Phuket well. It got very badly hit. And I remember having stayed in the resort just along the same strip as that. I remember watching, I was there the, exactly the year before to the day. Really? And I was watching it from 
Argentina, I think that year, I'd just arrived in Argentina. And to see those waves, I mean, the, the resorts were, were literally flooded. They were, they were wiped out. You know, I remember someone saying on the news that Laguna Beach had been totally wiped out. And actually it turns out it hasn't, but a lot of people were, were killed in the very area you were. What were you, when you were standing? So you were up on the hill. What are you, what are you seeing? Well, basically the water came in up to about 50 feet and literally everything from the gym on the beach to the very heavy beach furniture was just getting tossed about. And the waves that we got, there are two types of kind of tsunami or tidal waves. There's the type that we're very used to that we see in the movies, which is like the big crescent wave that sort of comes in very dramatically. And then you've got the second type, which was the type I was in, which was a surge wave. And this was, it's really deceptive because it's a bit like watching a bath fill up in, in at high speed. And it's at your sort of toes at one second and literally up to your waist within seconds. And the force of it, and, you know, I'm not a small guy, you know, I'm six foot one and pretty hefty with it and literally whipped me straight off my feet and just threw me straight into obviously the shore. So we were kind of lucky that we had the chance to get to higher ground. But the reason for telling you this kind of long-winded story was sometimes I think on our travels or in our life, and I'm not a fantastically spiritual person, but I do believe that there are sometimes reasons for things happening because the hotel that we were originally booked into everybody died. Mm. And it was just out of pure luck that we were able to get into this other hotel. And it was a really weird experience. And one of the other interesting things we found as well was that a lot of people turned around and said, we need to leave. We need to get out of the country super quick. The threat to a certain extent, apart from possibly a few aftershocks, had pretty much passed. And my girlfriend turned to me and said, Will, should we, should we head back? And I said, sweetheart, this is the time we really need to stay. And she said, why? And I said, because the community needs our help. They need our investment. Mm. They need our money because if everybody leaves, we're putting them in an even worse situation than they already drastically are. And you stayed and you helped. We did, yeah. What was that like, the aftermath? It was tough because, to be honest, uh, and again, I don't want to get too depressed if you're broadcast, but I mean... We'll uh, get on to all this. We'll get on to the happy, the, jolly stories. The, Actually, there aren't many happy, jolly stories say, in yeah. my world. <laughs> we'll go on to the kidnap and the... Oh, yeah, those are happy <laughs> stories. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of obviously, you know, what there was to do, I mean, many of the bodies were taken to temples, so there was IDing of bodies and that sort of thing. So it was, uh, it was pretty grim, but it kind of comes with the territory and... You know, you do become quite hardened in this industry. I mean, not entirely impervious. You, you are still very susceptible and it does stay with you. Certainly some of the visions and some of the things that you've seen, you know, I do believe in the old adage of what is seen can never be unseen, mm. which is again, I've translated through to, you know, whether it be clients, whether it be friends, or even if it be say, you know, kids who say, you know, I want to look at something online. And I go, seriously, what is seen can never be unseen. And you might only see it fractionally. So a good example was like the Christchurch terrorist attack a few weeks ago and this, the live streamed video by the perpetrator. And I don't know whether you saw it. And no, I hope you I didn't, didn't, Lisa. No. And I hope a lot of the listeners didn't mm. either. And I would really beseech them not to seek it out and try and mm. find it. Thankfully, it's been taken down from most places. But I watched it and it's, it's 17 minutes of the most horrendous, surreal and traumatic footage you can imagine. And it's not silent. There's audio, which again, whether it be the vision or whether it be the sound, both can potentially stay with you. These people 
are crazy and it does seem to be the, there are a lot of crazy people in the world at the moment. How safe do you feel? You know, you work with people preventing kidnaps and kidnap you know, situations. Do you ever fear for your own Yeah, life? absolutely. And I think anybody who says, you know, they're going to Iraq or South Sudan or another high, high risk or hostile environment who says, no, I'm impervious, I'm bulletproof and I'm going to be fine. I think it's kidding themselves and certainly kidding other people. You know, I've, I, I don't rate myself as the toughest guy in the room by any stretch. And there are a lot of guys who are far, far tougher than me. And generally, you know what? The most dangerous people in the world generally tend to be the nicest. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. Mm. And, the, and the ones who aren't so dangerous tend to be kind of vocal. But yeah, I mean, you're anxious about it. And when you go down on a particular operation, you are obviously concerned about your personal security. And I think it's a good thing because it's going to make you a little bit mm. smarter. So I do a lot of training courses for executives who are traveling overseas. I've been delivering quite a few recently. And I had a meeting yesterday with a client I'm delivering some training next week for. And he said, look, you know, the worry I've got, Will, is that we've got some new travelers, but we've got some veterans and we've solicited that you're coming in to do this training. And the, the veterans are turning around and say, oh, what is he going to teach us that we don't know already? The thing is that from my perspective and other security professionals will appreciate this, is that actually the veterans are the biggest risk. And the reason being is because they've become complacent. Now, we have it's a saying that for those individuals that are traveling over to, say, West Africa, maybe to relocate or to be on a task, we call it the six-month rule or the six-month law, which is where the individual will have been briefed by someone like me. He will say, you've got to watch out. There's villains around every single corner. You could get kidnapped and goodness what. And they'll get down there and then nothing will happen. And they'll, nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. And nothing will happen. And they'll go, oh, you know what? Who is that Will bloke? He's talking nonsense. We're obviously fine. Like and they become complacent and their sexual awareness drops down. And then it's usually about six months they get kidnapped <laughs> or they get robbed or something happens. I know I shouldn't laugh, but. But you do. You know what? When you're training a group and you've got young Told new you so. travelers, they're brilliant because they're, it's a bit like, think of it a little bit like the, the freshly kind of graduated copper. They're looking for a villain around every single corner. It's not until after they've been on the beat for probably a month or two that they actually then go, you know, there isn't a villain around every single corner and they start relaxing a little bit. So the new travelers are the fun ones, but you then got the adventure travelers who in their own free time will be going off to Sri Lanka or Indonesia or wherever. And they'll be going, yeah, but I travel around with literally a couple of flip flops and a wallet and that's it and I survive you know what's going to happen and the thing is is that it happens more than people might imagine so mm. like statistics for kidnapping there's no really good central resource outside of the insurance markets and most of those guys will keep it quiet and certainly we will we won't tell anybody about a kidnapping case that we've managed and certainly won't mention the client name and the client won't mention it because investors stakeholders other members of staff if it got out that they had a member of their staff kidnapped Probably everyone will go, I'm not traveling right. or I'm not going to that country. Or, or so a lot of your job exposure. is about keeping that quiet as well. Absolutely. So, I mean, for example, a lot of companies who have a kidnap and ransom insurance, a condition of proviso of that insurance is that people are not allowed to know that they have it. The reason being is because obviously if people know they've got it, it Why opens them up that? for targeting. Yes. <laughs> but it opens them up for targeting. By Come on, point. next time I get a job, when nobody offers me a job anyway, I don't want a job, but That's I might it. see if they've got a kidnap policy just to uh, you Then know, they to probably see. won't tell you. No, that's, That's it.
So where have you? We'll get on to the happy stuff in a minute because I know that. Well, I don't have know we got happy, happy stuff? Yeah, let's, I know let's the, hope so. the, you know the Hollywood stuff and everything. But where have you felt most afraid? What situation? What has been most hostile? Balham in uh, South London. I love. That. I like Balham actually. Yeah. Balham's right. I'm a so. South East Londoner myself. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Balham, I'm a South East Londoner. Oh, yeah, yeah. I grew up around Forest Hill. Oh, right. Oh, so this is where you got your. There you go. See, from, absolutely. Yeah. It's a bit like my wife. She grew up in the rough parts of Manchester near Mossside, and I remember a friend, one of my clients, who was an ex RSM. Uh, a regimental sergeant major for for the, the listeners that, that yeah, don't I have know. No idea. And he turned around, he was a real sort of growly sort of ex-RSM from Manchester. And he said, where are you from? And she said, you know, from Stretford. And he turned around and said, well, you learned how to handle a knife early, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> and I don't mean for chopping vegetables. Oh, I wouldn't pick a fight with her. No, I was going to say sure. she's probably harder than you are. I you should have Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, no, apart from with the wife and in Balham, where... Most dangerous place? Most oh, that's a really good question. I would say it probably would have been Iraq around 2003. And the reason being is that there was no real safe haven. And we were doing a lot of operations in the south of the country, and we were looking after contractors. So 2003 was, if you recall, the kind of liberation or the beginning of the chaos, let's, mm. let's, let's otherwise call it. And we would travel up from Basra to Baghdad for meetings in the, the Babylon, which is basically you know, the center of operations in the green zone, pretty much once a week. And it's a good seven-hour drive up the main sort of central arterial road, a little bit, if you want, like the M1 here in the UK, that was called the MSR Tampa. And MSR Tampa was a very weird road because some stages it was totally sort of concreted, other bits, it was just dirt track. It was kind of like Mad Max. And then you'd have what we termed the Alibaba, who were basically like highway robbery men, who would try and ambush you or try and ambush convoys, kill you all, take your stuff, and uh, and leave your vehicle burning on the side of the road. So, you know, we'd get one or two contacts from time to time. But there was this one refueling station halfway up the MSR Tampa. And do you remember Mad Max 2? Do you remember the kind of the, like the oil installation that the good guys are holding? Not exactly, in? but there'll be a lot of people listening, men particularly, who will remember that. <laughs> exact oh, you're so sexist. I'm sure there's plenty of female audience <laughs> members that will they'll know it. I can visualize but it. But it's yeah. like this kind of like refueling station in the middle. It's got great big walls and everything else. And we'd drop in there because you'd never be able to do it on one tank of fuel. And, then, you know, we would, it was just hilarious because we'd stop in Basra in the Cobb, which was basically the air base. And they had a pizza hut there. So we used to get a pile of pizzas and get in the car and we'd drive up the MSR town. That's not what you visualize people driving no, through such terrain. With, in it? our Pajero, you know, yeah. tickling along. It was hilarious. And we'd drive up and we'd get to this refueling station. And then literally someone would say, watch out, guys, quarter of a mile up the road, there are some bandits. And literally you'd have to run the corner when you got out because they'd be like, They've refueled the car. We can steal the fuel too. You know, we don't just take their weapons and all their stuff. Did so they take your pizza? No, we'd eaten it by their car. Can you imagine sharing a car with three members of the SAS? There's no going to be no pizza within about five minutes. Hoover the lot. It's like small children. I yeah. haven't had that much dealing with the SAS. We did have Ken Hames on. Well, actually, we've done a lot of Baghdad stuff recently. There you we had go. John Simpson on, who's oh, really? had some incredible stories. Oh, yeah. Would, yeah. And they had Levison Wood, you know, who's obviously an, he's an explorer and he had some really good. Um, it's such a shame because Iraq sounds like the most amazing country you know what it is and it's in the sad thing about it is the whole liberation process was just completely ridiculous in terms of how they did it i mean if you go back to sun tzu in the art of war which is a great read periodically to go back to one of sun tzu's main mantras was if you take over an opposing country do not dismantle the military and the police 
And that's exactly what we did. And therefore, there was no infrastructure. There was no law enforcement. And going back to your original question about how what, was I more scared there than anywhere else? Well, yeah, because of the lawlessness. And the lawlessness was just chaotic. So there was no real safe haven, so to speak, of other than the green zone or certain compounds that were set up. But the lawlessness extended elsewhere. I think there were there are quite a few shallow graves of various grievances that were settled out there. What you mean amongst, amongst the Allies and amongst sorts. every side? Yeah, absolutely, because there was no way to prosecute it. And it was only until the Blackwater incident where one of their convoys drove into a market, stated or claimed allegedly that they were being uh, fired upon, that they then shot pretty much everybody that was in shooting distance. And then that whole thing raised the whole profile about private contractors. And there were, we would see private contractors operating out there who were shameful in some of their practices. I'm not saying necessarily Blackwater, but there were some contractors that we just thought, you know what, you're just fanning the fire. And I would quite often say to my guys, think about if you were at home, and a foreign force come in, bully their way around, brandishing weapons, pushing your kids, your family, your wife out the way when they walk into a restaurant, how would you react? Mm. You are going to feel feed that group of uh, potential extremists or p- get them to play into those hands. Absolutely. It, it makes perfect sense. Uh, perfect sense. So where on the lighter hearted stuff, is there any light hearted stuff? No, there's not. It's spend all a lot misery. of time in Hollywood when we were out, when I've we got were cats. Do you want to talk about cats. my Bengal? There you go. I don't know. Do they I'm travel? not a dog person. I'm a cat person. I'm, a, I'm neither. I've got are hamsters. You? They're much more easy to look after. So you go, you were talking about, you know, you, you hang around with a lot of Hollywood stars. What do you do for them? What do I do for them? Uh, usually I'm like a uh, nursemaid. Uh, <laughs> confidant, father confessor. Sounds great. All sorts. If only I could afford you. I know. I am very expensive. I'm sure. Very, yes. very, very expensive. I mean, you, hang, you know, you know Matt Damon. You know various people. I can't say who I know. You no, know, no. I you told you that. You. Yeah. yeah, that maybe I might have heard of him somewhere. He was in a film sometime. Yeah, I think I've I don't know. Yeah. No, but you, you do. You do you protect There, there are some I work with. There are some I've met. Yes. And you know what? The the thing is, is that some of them are really lovely. And I mean, I did work on a movie a few years ago which was uh, my first foray into to working on films and it was kind of fun but wow what an eye-opener so and I remember coming back from that experience and I bumped into Andy McNabb you know the famous yes, SAS yeah. guy and I said uh, I said Andy you know because he worked on Heat which you know got massive acclaim and he's worked on quite a few movies and you know quite the veteran and I turned around and uh, I said oh my god that was an experience and he said yeah it is and I said you know I'm gonna get torn to pieces uh-huh. Andy when this movie comes out and he said just don't worry about it so the so thing what is, what were you doing in the movie and where were you filming? Well, I, on London Has Fallen, the sequel to Olympus Has Fallen, with Gerard Butler, ah, right. uh, with Aaron Eckhart, Morgan Freeman, nice. Angela Bassett. <gasps> I forget her name, but it's Tom Hardy's wife, who was oh, lovely. Uh, yeah, she's really, really lovely. And she's, she's really yeah, lovely. I forgot her name too. Yeah, she was in it. That's um, awful that she's Tom Hardy's wife. I know, she, Maybe I'm, we've got the opportunity know, to look her up I we shouldn't say now. that. We could. We could Google it quickly. Should we? And pretend that we know. Ouch, And then I'll leave this Edit this quick. But she was lovely. She was really nice. And so anyway, they were great. And Jerry was really sweet and lovely. And yeah, so I was involved very originally with the scriptwriter who was brought in, a chap called
called Christian Goodergast, who went on subsequently to have a movie last year, which I also helped with, called Den of Thieves, which again was with Gerald Butler. Me and Jerry were oh, destined like to always be in the same constellation. You know, when you said Jerry, I was thinking, who are you talking about? And I was thinking, was the d- d- director? I just realised you're talking about Gerard. Yeah, Gerard is the loveliest guy. He's I'm so sure. sweet. I'd love to meet him. But the thing is, oh, I'm sure you would. Yeah, actually, I've got a great story for you on that. So, can you get him on the podcast? Do you think he'd be up I'll for it? I'll try. I'll give him. A, I'll give him a call just after. Threaten him or something? Like no, no. would never do that. <laughs> but you know what? So, so, the one thing I found with celebrities is the ones you expect to be lovely generally are horrible, and the ones you expect to be horrible are usually really nice. And it's really weird. And I've even shared that with some celebrities, generally the ones who are nice, yeah, obviously yeah. not the horrible ones. But working on that movie, I worked with Christian on the script and we were putting together this whole thing about all these heads of state coming into the UK. I don't know whether you saw it. Nice. If not, why not? You better go <laughs> Sorry, and see it. Yeah, now so, I'm feeling uh, <laughs> so all these heads of state come into the UK and then this terrorist organisation basically wipes them all out, tries to wipe them all out. And it's kind of ludicrous and it's kind of silly, but hey, it's a popcorn movie. You know, it's not a documentary. Christian isn't your point. life a bit like that anyway, though? Pretty much, yeah, trip. pretty much. But uh, actually, I've got a funny story for you on that one as well. <laughs> I remember actually we finished a case with a very well-known celebrity. I can't mention his name. And we sat down and he turned around to me and said, Will, they could have made a movie about that. And I went, yeah, but let's hope they don't. Anyway... Good point. <laughs> would it actually be one of those things you think, actually, a bit like the movie of the, the presidential situation in America at the moment, you'd think that's not realistic. No, I know. <laughs> I know. And that's a funny thing. So, yeah, to tell you the funny story about Jerry. So, and Jerry. he might not thank me if he hears this. He'll probably oh, yeah, well, he's one of our biggest We'll fans. make sure. I'll email afterwards. I'll email <laughs> okay, and say he's got to listen in to mine. And Is I'll he on say, Twitter? I said something really embarrassing about you. And then he'll oh, definitely yes, listen, definitely. won't he? Is he on yeah. Twitter? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Yeah. We'll find him. He's, he's, We're but, coming after you, Jerry. But you know what? How nice he was so we were out filming in bulgaria when they had london all mocked up there and they'd even rebuilt the front of uh st paul's cathedral it's amazing why didn't they just go down the road to st paul's cathedral where the actual thing yeah because you can't have a massive firefight there without possibly panicking the locals you know (laughs) right so so anyway i'd been out there for quite a while and my missus said when are you coming home and i'm like uh, I should be able to come home shortly. And she said, no, 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 you know, you've been out there for weeks. And I said, okay. So I looked at the script and there was a bit coming up, which I wasn't pr- probably involved in or needed for. And I, I said to the producers, I said, do you mind if I scoot back for, a, you know, a week? You know, and they said, yeah, no problems at all. So I go around and see everybody at the direct and say, yeah, okay for me to disappear for a week. And they said, yeah, yeah, fine. So I then go and see Jerry and I said, Jerry, mate, I'll see you in a week. And he went, what? You're not going? Yeah, I need you here. And I'm like, no, no, come on, you don't need me. You're fine. You're fine. And I think he just liked me for the, can I say shits and giggles? Yeah. Okay, shits <laughs> and giggles. So he just turned around and said, no, 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 you've got to be here. And I said, look, I can't do that. I can't do it. I've already told my missus I'm coming back. She's going to be so upset. I said, you've got to have to do me a favor. And he said, okay. So I flew back and he said, but you've got to be back this weekend. So literally it was two days, but my wife didn't know this. I get back and I take her out to Scott's, you know, Scott's restaurant in the West End in Mayfair. It's a lovely restaurant. So, you know, I apply her with champagne and she can check. You girls are smart. She knows something's up. She turns around and she says, what is it then? I said, sweetheart, I got a personal message for you. And I gave her my phone and there's a message, personal message from Jerry saying, you've got to let him come back, please. I'll be your biggest fan. And it was the sweetest video that he did. And she turned around to me and sorry, Jerry, if you are listening. And she went, 
Yeah, but it's not George Clooney. Shocker. You girls, impossible to please sometimes. <laughs> Did you go back? You yeah, go yeah, back? yeah, yeah, I went yeah, back. Yeah. Jerry wins, yeah, Jerry wins. Jerry oh, won, sorry. Jerry won. All right, I'm worried about running out of time and missing oh. some of your travel, so I'm just going to check my... See, I can just my... blab on, can't no, I? No, well, so can I, absolutely. I said anything about travel at all. No, we've spoken loads about travel, <laughs> we have. But I might do like a quick fire round, actually, which I don't have prepared, but I might do it. But no, I'll A quick out. fire when round? I, when I say quick fire to you, oh you're, like, you're ducking, aren't you? You're standing in front of me. Quick fire, take cover. That usually follows you're already reaching for the yeah. gun do you have a gun or would i honestly tell you if i did yeah, i'm not gonna pat you down oh, shockers um, not in this country no, no. no that's good highly illegal apparently you have a grab bag by the door with your passport and credit card in yeah, so you, you can do. go straight Absolutely. to the airport at yeah, any yeah. given moment does that happen do you literally get a call and go we need you in yeah absolutely now? so a lot of my guys will carry their passports with them every day anyway because sometimes it can be that spontaneous that you literally need to go. But as far as I'm concerned, I think the only things you need is your passport and your credit card. As long as you've got those two, then you can buy everything else along the way. So whether it be at the airport, in the duty-free, at the destination that you get to. So as long as you've got those, and that can even be down to your clothes, you could buy jeans. But again, depending on what the task is. So, you know, I've got traveling with just carry-on luggage down to a fine art. And my, my suggestion would always be, where possible, Always travel with carry-on. Never stow hold luggage. The reason being is, A, it's going to delay you. B, it keeps you in that location, particularly if you're going into a, an emerging market or a developing market where there's a high likelihood of potential fraud or lack of security or potential heightened terrorism. You want to be in and out of the mm. airport as quickly as possible. You know, one of the things I advise people is that when you go into an airport or you're coming out, there are five profiles of people that you need to watch out for. Oh, this is good. You've got the first type, which is the people that are leaving and flying. You've got the people, the second, which are arriving. You've got the people that are dropping them off or are picking them up. You've got the airport workers themselves, which is the fourth. And then you have the fifth. Who are they? Criminals. If they don't fit easily, in your view, into one of those four categories, that's the person you need to stay the furthest away from. And how, do you, how do you spot them? Are they wearing like stripy T-shirts? and They do, and masks. Sacks and yeah, masks. That's it. Yeah. And a bag that says swag, yeah. not for checking. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on swag. <laughs> awesome. How do you spot the criminals at the airport? Well, have a look and see what they're doing. So if you're picking up someone, you will generally be hanging around in the arrivals hall. Okay. You will look as though you've got a purpose. Where is your eyes? Are your eyes looking at the, the exit door as people are coming through? Are you holding a sign which has got the person's name on it? Are you carrying a bunch of flowers? Because you look like the romantic type, Lisa. Or a box of chocolates. Oh, always. I carry them always. everywhere. You Every never time know when you, you might need them. You meet someone coming through. Yeah. And they could be also the drivers. And they will be dressed in a particular way. So a lot of it may come down to your instinct. And it's your gut. And your gut will be telling you first and foremost whether there's something you think, hang on a second, something not quite right about this person. Go through those five and think, do they fit any of those categories? And if they don't easily fit it, play on the side of caution. Do you sometimes feel you're paranoid or is that paranoid part of, yeah, paranoia part of your job? It's, I don't think you call it paranoia. I think you call it situationally aware. It's being conscious of your surroundings. And I think the biggest problem that we face these days is that we're way too absorbed in our devices and in our own little bubbles. And I mean, you know what it's like walking through the streets of London as you could in Manhattan, in Paris, anywhere in the world, that you can be literally bumping into people because they're just not looking where they're going. It's raising your eyes. And for example, I got taught evasive and defensive driving many, many, many years ago by a fantastic guy who was the lead driver within the security services. The two lessons he taught me, which are really good and also apply for if you're traveling overseas and you hire a vehicle, for example. Uh, the first of which is always look the furthest point down the road. 
Okay, because if you look the furthest point down the road, you'll always see the hazard before it's on you, and you can, you've got time to prepare and react. So the same when you're walking down the street, look at the furthest point ahead of you. If you see a bunch of guys coming towards you, or someone who makes you instinctively feel unhappy, gives you enough time and notice to potentially step into a shop, go into a restaurant, go into an office, cross the road, take some sort of evasive measure. And the second thing, and this is why it's applicable for, say, driving, and that's not just when you hire cars overseas, but when you're here in the UK, is tires on tarmac. Always make sure that when you're driving along and then when you come to a halt in traffic, at a stop sign, wherever it might be in congestion, always make sure you can see the rear tires of the vehicle in front of you oh. on the road. And if you can, you'll always have enough room to manoeuvre out. Oh, that's very clever. Never even thought about that. So I did say, I promised a quick fire round. I'm going to have to make one. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. No. Let me see. The place where you felt most happy. Most happy. Wow, that's a good question. I love New York. Uh, I think other than London, it's the one city in the world that I could very easily uh, migrate to. I think it's great. I love its vibrancy. I love its abrupt population. Yeah, it, it scans with, you know, similar to London for me. So I'd say, yeah, real happy there. One of the best views you've ever seen? Best views? Well, obviously, I'd have to say my, my, my wife. But, you know, um, <laughs> She's standing in it. What is she? Where is she standing? Okay. Wow, that's a really good question. I'd have to say the Taj Mahal. You can see thousands of pictures of it. And it's not unless until you've gone to Agra. Have you been? No, I haven't. Oh I've God. been several places in India. Not until there. you go to Agra and take the time to get there, because it is worth it, that you then see the Taj Mahal with your own eyes, that you truly understand why it's one of the seven wonders of the world. Did you do the Princess Diana photo? I did. I crossed my legs very coquettishly uh, yeah. and pouted. But where did you go to relax? Because, you know, poor you, you went on holiday to the tsunami to yeah. accidentally to relax. You know, that was your one relaxing holiday. Where else do you go to relax? You know what? I'm one of these people when I go on holiday, I can actually lie on a sunbed for two weeks and do nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from listen to music, read books, eat, drink and fall asleep. I don't have to go and climb a mountain. I don't have to go and hike a, you know, a Kilimanjaro or anything like that. I, I like to do all that stuff and I've done a lot of that stuff. But somewhere like the Maldives for me, fantastic. Give me the turquoise sea. I can snorkel. I can scuba dive. I can sleep. I can relax. I can recharge. For me, that's kind of my oasis. Yeah. Well, I suppose you're doing all the active stuff at work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, but you know, do, do, I've done a thing called the Marathon de Sable a couple of times, which is uh, an ultra marathon across the Sahara Desert. So, you know, I do the odd things. I'm yeah, getting a bit old for it now, though. You spoke a little bit about what we can do to be a bit safer when we're traveling the airport. What else, what other tips do you have to, you know, in this time of heightened security, what other tips do you have for us when we're traveling? Sure. A couple of quick ones. First and foremost, any of the listeners who've ever lost their passport when they've been overseas will know what a nightmare it is to get a replacement. It takes you two seconds to take a photograph of your passport page. Keep that with you because if you do need to get a replacement, it'll be a lot quicker with that information in front of you than it will be that for the FCO or for the embassy to try and scrabble around and find it. Another quick one is always get through into secured areas as quickly as you possibly can. There's no reason to be lurking around unless you're meeting or picking someone up. If you've arrived at the airport, get straight through security because that's the securest part, obviously, of the airport before you get on your plane. When you get on the plane, when you have the overhead compartment, you know what it's like when you put your bag up there. And if you put it above your head and someone else goes in there, you're thinking, are they mucking about with my stuff and moving it about and crunching my beautiful hat or whatever it might be? Always put it in the bin of the seat next to you 
in the next aisle because then when they open the bin you can actually see what they're doing when they oh, get well, in there that's very clever. and surprisingly there have been a few occasions where i know people who've had their laptop stolen even in business class on flights from someone going into the overhead bin above them that's very clever so put it in the opposite side of the aisle absolutely oh, so you can see brilliant. it as you do it i'm going to be doing that one uh, always pack your swimsuit with you <laughs> this comes from a pr friend of mine that i used to that i went to the it wasn't the maldives i don't know i went to so many places india i went to india with her in this beautiful hotel the time hotel you know i know yeah, yeah, yeah they're amazing yeah and uh, she always packs this bikini with her because that's her most valued possession because you can buy anything else when you're away but you Absolutely. can't buy good, good swimwear point. and good swimwear is very important you should add that to your security list <laughs> as long as they don't have to see a photograph of me in a bikini that's obligatory remember what is seen can never be unseen Lisa. what is seen can <laughs> never be unseen i think that is a very good way to end it however i have one last question for you and my last question this is, is the colombo question it's the colombo yes. question about, i'm walking out the door as we speak and another thing and another thing this is the one that's really going to get you my last question is always about music because I think that music and travel go hand in hand mm. and maybe not when you're you know obviously protecting someone in the middle of the desert in Iraq or wherever but, but music I think you know helps cement memories and, and travel and people do listen to music while traveling if you had to pick one song that reminds you of a special or memorable time or place of travel what would that one song be wow I'm gonna really reveal myself now I, this is the best question see yeah. the Colombo question it is the Colombo question it is for me, it would have to be Sweet Freedom by Michael McDonald. Oh, yes, I know it. I can do, I can visualize that or audioalize that. And what does it remind you of and why? It's a very iconic song for me for a number of different reasons. And it's featured across my life in various different places, whether it be me personally having it, playing it, listening to it on headphones, or it actually playing in a bar somewhere in a weird part of the world. I'm a big soul boy at heart. And that is an iconic track for me. And if I, if you said to me, okay, you arrive in some crappy part of the world, you get in a crappy vehicle, you strap on your nine millimeter and you've got your M4 Colt Commando next to you and a couple of magazines ready to always, rock and roll. Always. That's the track I'd have on the Jeep. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it was such a treat to talk to you and find out more about your mysterious world. Next week, I'd love to say we have Gerard Butler, if I can get Will to quietly persuade him. But if not, I'm sure we'll have someone else who will be equally as fascinating. See you then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.